Game seven, eight seconds left, home team down by one. Oh, the home team strips the ball and the point guard is all alone. But it appears that there's a wet spot on the free throw line. The fans go silent. Their championship aspirations flash before their eyes. Wait, someone's running out on the court. Oh my, it's the towel boy. How did he clean it so fast? The point guard takes off and dunks the ball. Game over, the crowd erupts. Towel boy, towel boy. Hello, everybody, and thank you for that brilliant standing ovation. Welcome to another podcast episode of the Towel Boys. Landon here with me, Andy, discussing the first two games of the Bucks Suns NBA Finals, along with a new segment that we are calling Max or Pass. Let's jump right into this final series that has been really interesting for a bunch of reasons. The Suns are obviously up 2-0. Landon, what have you seen from the Phoenix Suns through two games that has really impressed you? They have so many ways to put the ball in the basket. And I think that's the really underrated part of the team that's coming into these finals because people like to point to the injuries and put the asterisk next to the Suns because nobody saw it coming. But in reality, what they have is a mid-range dominance that no like tandem of players has showed in a really long time on the same team. They have three-point shooters spacing the floor, and then they have one of the best touch big men on his jump hooks and just regular like put-ins in the basket where he's standing next to the rim. He is awesome near the rim and the mid-range and the three-point leads to a ridiculous offense that almost never goes stagnant unless guys are literally missing wide open shots but it creates good looks and it makes it so that the other team feels defeated because every time they do something good the suns come down and just put one right back in their face so that's that's my biggest takeaway i'm going to say that that all of what you just said is true, but what has impressed me the most is that they have gone from game one to game two and won in a completely different fashion. Game one, they struggled from three a little bit, and they went, what, like 24 of 25 from the line? Something ridiculous. They shot incredibly right. efficient. Jay Crowder also, missed the last free throw. Yeah, he did. <laughs> They're also statistically the best free throw team of all time, fun fact, which is crazy in the sure. playoffs. Um, they... They didn't turn the ball over too much. They had about nine turnovers. But really, it was the free throws that carried them and made the difference. Game two, they shoot like six free throws. But they hit 50% of their threes, which is absurd. All the props in the world to the Phoenix Suns for making adjustments from game one to game two that they had to make. They didn't drive as much. They didn't draw contact. I mean, you, you kind of know going into some of these games that if you have a lot of fouls game one, the other team starts to complain. You may see a few less. They didn't have to rely on that at all. They shot 50% from three. They had excellent ball movement, even more crisp than game one to get guys open. Everything about this team is beautiful basketball. They are perfectly balanced as a team with a great backcourt and shooting, like you said, a solid big man and a really good coach. Right. And then on the other end, you have Giannis displaying pure dominance, mostly in the middle, in the paint, but you have the rest of his team completely folding from the outside, especially Middleton and Drew, who cannot buy a three ball or any of their usual mid-range go-tos. So it's been pretty brutal for them. Right. It's That's pretty much what this series, the headline's been for the Bucks. It's Giannis has been amazing, and where is the help? Drew Holiday has been inefficient. He's, of course, an excellent defender. He had... Two ridiculous blocks, one on Devin Booker as kind of a chase down, and then another one on Aiton when Aiton just decided to ram into him. Did not work at all. But excellent defender and playmaker, but yeah, he's been incredibly inefficient. And Drew Holiday is the type of player who's going to use his smarts to try to get an advantage offensively. He's been trying to dribble up the court when the Suns aren't even back, trying to get a quick layup here or there. But when he's missing those, he's just wasting time, rushing the game, getting the Suns... Um, and fast break opportunities and just not giving his other teammates um, a chance to catch their breath and get better shots later in the shot clock. And then you look at Chris Middleton, who's uh, just 
doing his normal thing in the offense, but he's just missing shots. They're just not falling. And that is that is something that is a player specifically. Chris Middleton needs to be on his A plus game if the Bucs are going to come back and win this series. Right. And looking at the two teams, I think it's really interesting how different it is having Drew Holiday versus Chris Paul. Because the Bucs could have traded for Chris Paul like the Suns did. And, you know, instead of doing that Drew trade, they could have brought him in. So we could be looking at a very different series right now where the Bucs actually had the floor manipulator, one of the best point guards of all time, running the show. And I think it's really cool how Chris Paul is so adept at knowing where the big is on those pick and rolls. So, for instance, he comes off the pick from Aiton, and when Brooke Lopez inevitably drops, he knows to only go a little bit forward and stay in that mid-range area to either make Brooke come out a little bit and hesitate and then have the lob to Aiton or to take a step back pull up from the elbow. And that danger of having a guy being able to hit a mid-range that consistently with a big man that's as slow as Lopez is just so rough for the Bucks defense because it's constant hesitation. People want to pinch on Chris Paul. They can't decide where to put Drew Holiday to stop Booker or, or CP3 on the dribble penetration. They're just a mess defensively, in my opinion. Definitely. And like you were saying, when that defense collapses a little bit, it opens up a guy, it opens up shooters, especially for one of the best passers this game has ever seen in Chris Paul. When you have Brooke Lopez and you have Drew Holiday trying to trap and, and collapse a little bit and not more of a scramble defense because you're already in an, in a disadvantaged position because Chris Paul's coming off a screen and you know he has that deadly mid-range, you're leaving guys like Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson a little bit open. And those shots fell in game two. And I look, with the, with the confidence the Suns are playing at, I wouldn't be surprised if they fall the rest of the series too. So the Bucks need to figure it out defensively. Coach Bud needs to make some scheme changes. I'm not sure what it is because you're not going to play zone against a team that just shot 50%, but you need to do something to fix the pick and roll, the high pick and roll that both Chris Paul and Devin Booker were doing in game two that let them put on that show. Oh, absolutely. They they have to make adjustments to that. It doesn't help that Giannis is a little injured and can't perform the way he usually does. But there are some adjustments to be made. For instance, you can play that small ball lineup that they were they were testing out. The issue is the spacing with P.J. Tucker in there is not like it was when he used to be on the Rockets. This is a very, very uh, just off player who cannot hit his corner threes that he was the best at in the league for three straight years or something. This team has a lot of flaws. They did not fix their main issue with the Drew Holiday trade. While they had to do the Drew trade, what they needed was a pull-up threat to go alongside Giannis, a pull-up point guard like Chris Paul, and they just didn't get him. And instead, they boosted their defense, which was already really good, rather than getting you know the compliment to, to Giannis. Right, and, and looking specifically at game two, even though the Suns put up 118, the same exact amount they put up in Game 1, I didn't think the Bucks' defense was that bad in Game 2. The Suns just hit some really tough shots. Um, however, what let the Bucks down in Game 2 was were the inefficiencies of Middleton and Drew Holiday. Listen to this stat. Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Brooke Lopez, the three of them combined, put up 36 points in Game 2. Mikhail wow. Bridges and Jay Crowder put up 38. That is so brutal. <laughs> if if your second through fourth best players get outscored by the Suns' fourth and fifth best players, you're not going to win ever. No. It's inexcusable if you're no. Chris Middleton to score, what was it, 11 points? 11 points. 11. That is, that's not okay. That no. He needs to fix that now. And look, when you have Giannis playing as dominant as he has been, you almost like it's like a cry for help at some point. There was a clip of him at the end of the third quarter in game two, just like 
trying to get his men hyped up and they're all just kind of looking sad and like mm-hmm. dejected just knowing that the sun's barrage of offense is coming and they can't do anything about it and Giannis is like the only one out there with any fight in him mm-hmm. and it was really it it's was, shown in their games and it was it was every run the Bucks made the sun's countered it just felt like when the Bucks made a run like you were saying they, they were so dejected they're like all right when's the sun's run coming Let's exactly. prepare, like not yep. let's let's go on another run ourselves. And of course, that's not actually their mindset, but it, it kind of felt like that. It felt like any time it got close, it was bound to widen up again. It, it never thought like the Bucks genuinely were threatening the Suns, even when they were down five or down six late in the fourth quarter. I still thought, okay, this game's over. And it it was based on the score, it was definitely not. What what would you give percentage wise? the chance of Milwaukee winning the next game. I'm I'm feeling confident that the series is going back to Milwaukee. I'm going to give them a 60% chance in game three. Yeah, I was thinking around 75 or 80 because I just really trust that the home court of Milwaukee will get this vital game to at least swing in their right. favor. I'm not saying anything about game four, but much like... Um, Miami won game three in the finals last year after getting beat down mm-hmm. pretty bad in the first two. I think that that this third game, it's almost like a it's too embarrassing to lose. You don't want to go down 3-0 in the finals. Right. And and I I know that Drew Holiday's he has that dog in him. Giannis has that dog. He's never going to stop fighting. Middleton, I truly believe, also has that fight. We saw in the Heat were beating the Bucks 3-0. Giannis was hurt. He stepped up and put on a show. I really do. Like you said, I expect him to show up at home. But it's not just about the Bucks showing up. If the Suns shoot 50% from three again, who knows what's going to happen? The Suns are so confident right now. And it's not like they have these guys who are going to choke on the road. Chris Paul and Devin Booker are solid, consistent players. Jay Crowder, who's hot and cold, is going to step up when they need him most. I, I trust him even more on the road than I do at home, knowing he's going to set the tone. So they have a lot of guys that that still are going to play well, and it's really going to be up to the Bucks to figure out how to slow down Chris Paul and Devin Booker defensively and how to just hit shots, just make your shots. I think it's, it's interesting because Connaughton on the floor is tough. He's not a good defender. He's not a good shooter. He's not a good finisher. He's not a good passer. So he's really just a placeholder for Dante DiVincenzo, who is not great at any of those things I listed before, but is better than Connaughton at nearly all of them, if not all of them. <laughs> so like, they, no, it's not a star injury. It's not like Kyrie Irving went down, but he was just important to keeping the connectivity of their of their team going. And without him and having Connaughton there, it's like nobody else has confidence in him. He doesn't have confidence in his own jumper. And the other team can just sag off of him every time. Right. But what what we will say, what we will see in game three is a slightly, a, a slight minutes boost for Giannis, for Middleton, for Drew Holiday. They were all around the 40-minute range last game. I expect them to be more in the 42 to 44-minute range, which will take some minutes away from Pat Connaughton. What I didn't expect in game two was Jeff T getting 12 minutes. That, to me, came out of nowhere, and he was fine. But, look, Jeff Teague is, is a, at this point in his career, he's an average backup point guard. And that's just... He's below it, average. That's fine. That's fine. You can call him that. And I'd still rather have him out there than Connaughton. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but neither of them are good options. The best player off their bench right now is is Bobby Portis, and they need him to be good offensively, or else they're not going to be able to play him. Right, because he can't do anything defensively. He just right. he's too small for big guys and too big for small guys. So, so without Bryn Forbes and Bobby Portis playing well offensively, the Bucks don't have anybody on their bench to go to that can either excel on defense or on offense. It's it's a tough situation. No. which makes them have to play their stars 45 minutes a game. This is what's so funny about that whole um, Bogdan Bogdanovich failed trade is that that probably would have made them champions this year. 
could be. I mean, that that'd be a huge boost. Right. Picture picture the lineup. You have you slide PJ Tucker to the bench, or you put Giannis at the five, and you put Brook Lopez to the bench. Either way, your six man is significantly better than it is right now. Oh, it's game changing. Yeah, to not have to play Connaughton would just like completely change their fortune right now because you know you're already dealing with Giannis not being able to shoot. You're dealing with Brook being really inconsistent from three. Drew is not a good shooter. We knew, like, everybody knew that when they traded for him. They still did it because they thought it would raise their ceiling on the defensive end and playmaking. Which end, it has. It which has. it has. Um, Middleton's their only outside threat. And if you sub out Connaughton for a, you know, really, really solid, you know, role player, like, I wouldn't call Bogdanovich a star, but he's one of the best role players that you're going to see. He's a starter. He's a starter. Yeah, exactly. Um, he he would have completely changed their fortune because then you're not relying on DiVincenzo. He was in that deal. And assuming Bogdanovich stays healthy, which he didn't that much in the Easter Conference Finals, but he still played, uh, he could have, or so, yeah, in the Easter Conference Finals, he could have completely changed what's going on right now. And the difference between Bogdan Bogdanovich and Pat Connaughton isn't one's dropping 25 every game, one's dropping five. Pat Connaughton put up 14 and seven this past game. He shot really well, but what you're getting is consistency and the potential for a 20 plus game, which in my opinion, and you'll probably agree with me. You really don't have any chance of that with Pat Connaughton. 14 points and seven boards will probably be his best game of the series. I mean, it it would be like the best game of his life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, slow your roll. Pat Connaughton. He seems like a nice guy. Come on. I'm not even being mean. I like, like, if he put up 20 on, you know, six threes and a dunk in the finals, that's the best it would get for him. Oh, definitely. I thought you were saying the 14 it can't get any better. No, like, ah, no, come on, no. Come on, come on, come no, on. But, but Bogdan Bogdanovich, he could, I, I, he may have even fit in as their six man. But even if he's their six man, he's playing 30, 35 minutes, and he's probably taking 15 shots, probably putting up 20, 18 to 20 points a game with the potential to explode for 30. So, yeah, it's a huge difference. He brings that outside scoring threat. He's he'd be their best ISO guy off the bench if he's playing off the bench. It, it would have made such a difference. But right. they don't have him. So here we are. Let's talk about Giannis's third quarter for a minute. Because I don't know, I don't know if you agree, but to me, this doesn't feel like the NBA Finals. There's no LeBron, there's no Steph, there's KD. It feels like I'm watching a second round matchup. But we're not. We're watching two really good teams that have had really good seasons and Giannis set his he's set history he was he put up 20 points in the third quarter more than any player since MJ in I think 93 when he put up like 22 or 23 points yep 20 points in the third quarter and nobody's talking about it because they lost Giannis was utterly dominant 42 12 and 4 last night yeah those are once again Shaq numbers and I was telling this to Andy on the phone earlier I really have completely reframed my opinions of Giannis around thinking about him as a Shaq instead of a Kobe. And it allows me to appreciate him a lot more and stop nitpicking the deficiencies in his game. It allows me to see the trajectory for him as a player more to, you know, the Shaq range of like 10, like top, I don't know, I'll give him I'll be generous eight to 12 of all time instead of top three of all time. And it just lowers the expectations to where when he does something like that, you're like, Oh yeah, I remember why this guy won two MVPs. He's just missing that one other guy that can create for him in the last two minutes. And while Middleton does it sometimes he's not an off the dribble threat to the point that, you know, Kobe was to where, it makes a difference in the finals, for instance. Right. And call me crazy, but when Chris Middleton is hot, he plays like Kevin Durant. There were a couple of games in the playoffs where he is scorching hot, 20-point quarters. He's unbelievable. He can pull up over anybody. He's got long arms. He's a really good shooter. The problem is he plays like that 10% of the time. And 50% of the time, when he's the other 40, he's playing all right. And then 50% of the time, He's playing horrible. <laughs> He's been terrible. Game one, he, he had a lot of points, but he wasn't super efficient. And game two, like I said, he had 11 points. That cannot happen. He right. needs to be more consistent 
And if he is more consistent, putting up 20 to 25 points, shooting the ball efficiently, that is the Kobe to Giannis's Shaq that you need. But it, it hasn't been there. I mean, the, the biggest difference is the dribble penetration for me because Middleton is a really good spot-up shooter and he's a really good, you know, post-up mid-range kind of player where he takes those post-fades and fadeaways and stuff, which is similar to Kobe in terms of you can always take that shot, whether it's open or not, and if you're good at it, then it's somewhat of a guaranteed open look. But Kobe was able to penetrate into the paint and kick out to shooters when the defense collapsed on him and Shaq because they were so scared of him ooping to Shaq and so scared of Kobe dunking on them that, you know, there were all of a sudden four defenders in the paint and two guys open on the outside. Middleton doesn't give you any of that. He is only creating for himself except for, you know, a few possessions when he'll channel it. But his passing vision is an extraordinary. His handles aren't extraordinary. And while you might trust his jumper at the end of the game, that's not enough when you're trying to win at the highest stages. Right. It's it's almost like offensively, Drew Holiday combined with Chris Middleton is that Kobe Bryant type player that you need. Because Drew Holiday is an excellent driver. He's more physical and and he he's a better playmaker than than Chris. But then you have Chris Middleton, who's pretty much just a spot up shooter. And having those guys separately is not what you want. No. Because like you said, I mean, Middleton is definitely more of a Kevin Durant than a Kobe Bryant in terms of play style. And I'm going to pull up more. And yeah, it's it's an issue, especially when he's off. And he's pretty much one-dimensional offensively, where it's I'm going to spot up either yep. from three or dribble up for, for mid-range. Sure. And if he's off, then you're not worrying about those double teams coming over to stop his shot. He's not able to kick the ball out to a guy who's more open it's really a problem so this leads to me to my last point about the series and then i'm ready to move on to the max or pass segment but this is another hypothetical and it doesn't actually matter but i'm just thinking it's too bad the Giannis supermax deal didn't have to happen or didn't happen one summer later because then they could have lost again and been ready to part with Middleton. And instead of trading all of their assets for Drew, they could have pooled Middleton with some of their assets and gotten like a real like ball handling pull up point guard like Kyrie or like Dame or something. Because right. this Drew thing just isn't cutting it for me. I think that Damian Lillard instead of Chris Middleton wins a championship dame instead of chris and drew but i still like love that way more i mean if they don't have drew then they have some sort of money to get a, a third guy whether it's a max or Correct. not so yeah i mean add xyz player i don't know Kyrie, i think it's a little bit closer uh, i do think there's a gap between dame and Kyrie, just based on a consistency standpoint there is who i really trust yeah i was thinking more along the lines of somebody who who plays a little bit closer in style to Chris Middleton in terms of defense, still has the handles and the pull-up, but it's not a point guard, and Paul George, who's somebody we've talked about. Is I, it wouldn't, even I wouldn't want that. No, no. Because now, now, if we saw this year's Paul George without Kawhi, every year it's a different story. Correct. But the inconsistencies kind of mirror Middleton. Agreed. No, they, they would have needed... Concerning. I would have wanted to see Giannis with a you know, pull-up threat point guard like Chris Paul, Dame, Kyrie. That's who I would I think would pair the best with him. And right. like I said, they had no choice. They needed to make a move that summer because Giannis had to sign that Supermax and, and whatnot. But it's a shame because I think they could have been a lot better had they been able, been able to play it differently. So two final questions before we move on. So you gave me your percent chance that the Bucks win game three, but what is your percent chance that the Bucks win the series? And then what is your series prediction blank in blank games? I'd say I'd give the Bucks a 10% chance to win the series. Wow, that's low. 
Okay. And I'm gonna say Suns in five, Bucks take game three, and that's it. Okay. I am going to say the Bucks have a twenty-five percent chance of winning. Just because I do think that if a few key things swing in their favor, which they very easily can, they could definitely take a hold of the series. And I'm going to say Suns in six. I don't know exactly how it'll play out, whether it's a couple of road victors in a row, games four through six or whatnot, or if the Bucks take three and four, I'm not sure. I just have a weird feeling they'll get two games off. This team is too talented to lose in five, especially after taking the Nets so far on Kevin Durant. I don't know. I know the Suns are hot. I, just, I don't know. I don't see it. Like, where's the talent, though? It's like Giannis and then... They have three like, all-star caliber players. No, I know, but it's like Giannis and then 10% of Middleton, like you said earlier, and then like 5% of Drew. So they have like well, I'm expecting 1.15 star players. <laughs> well, game two it was, yes. <laughs> yes. No, if, if they play like that, they're going to get swept. Probably. I, I Like I said, I think the Bucs take a home game, but, you know. We'll see. Not if Middleton puts up 11. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Let's do max or pass. I'm excited for this one. Sure. So the new segment, max or pass, where Landon, I will list off 10 players to you. I'll answer after you. But I will list off 10 players who are still on their rookie deals, who are either eligible for a max extension with their current team this year or next year. And I'm going to ask you whether you would max them or pass. Not sign them to a max, risk re-signing them when they are up for free agency, where they could be lost to another team, or you'd have to match any offer. So let's jump right into it with player number one who is eligible for a max extension after the season ends, after the finals end, DeAndre Ayton. Would you give DeAndre Ayton a max contract extension? Yes. He fits too well with Booker to not give a max to and based on what he's done this postseason it's very similar to uh bam out of bio last postseason where what they did in those playoffs showed so much potential that when they're up for that contract that summer you just have to give it to them ayton is like the new player of the playoffs just because of how dominant he's been compared to his regular season self over the past few years and if you don't max him, you're going to end up paying a max offer in order to match whoever gives him one in restricted free agency. So you might as well just give him the extension now. I'm going to say yes, but not because I think DeAndre Ayton is worth a max contract as a player or even think he'll necessarily develop into one, but kind of like you were alluding to, I think he's in this twilight zone of, well, we can't let him leave. He's too good, so we should max him. But is he worth the max in a few years? I don't know, but we need to do it, especially if the Suns hold on and win this NBA Finals. Like you were saying, he fits in really well to the team. He has a lot of talent. But unlike Bam Adebayo, I don't think DeAndre Ayton has enough developed intricacies in his game that are, that are a wide enough variety to make him this max player. Bam is a really good ball handler and a passer and has shown his aggressive side, even though he this past year really hasn't been. But we've seen it all from him. And Aiton really took off this year due to Chris Paul. Bam doesn't have Chris Paul. He's done it himself. So I think there is a small difference, but I would still max him because you can't let him leave and you can't even risk it. That's a max. All righty. DeAndre Ayton has the check mark, the stamp of approval from both of us. Next up, who this player is a free agent now, so the team actually missed their chance for a max extension. But would you still max this player if you are the team that currently has him? The Atlanta Hawks and John Collins. This one's really hard. And I think my answer is going to be no. Because they already have Gallinari at around three for 60, so like 20 ish a year. And then you have Trey on that's going to be on a big deal soon enough. Capella's on a pretty big deal. Bogdanovich is on a pretty big deal. So if we're being realistic, 
I think you can let Collins go and still find value in other guys that you bring in to replace him and in internal growth with like DeAndre Hunter, for instance, to the point where if a team offers John Collins the max, I, I think you just have to let him walk. You, If you wanted to trade him at some point, you probably should have done the extension and then had that opportunity like present itself earlier. Right. I again agree with you. I'm saying no. Similar reasons, but if you're the Hawks, as I've talked about, I really think the Hawks need to avoid doing exactly what the Heat did. Being a stagnant offseason team who thinks they can develop their core enough to make a jump the next year. Buddy, you just made the NBA, you just almost made the finals. They lost in the Eastern Conference Finals because there were some injuries. They're not going to be better next year. No. So, and I don't think a team, like I've said, the Toronto Raptors, would do a sign and trade, do a sign and trade, do a sign and trade for Pascal Siakam if they're getting a max contract and John Collins back. So I don't think there's any reason to offer him a max. If another team is bold enough to give him that max offer, great. But they're not going to do it as the Atlanta Hawks. So I say no. Okay. So maxing Aiton, no for, no for Collins. Yeah. I don't know Player how much three. better Aiton is than Collins, but. No, he may be worse. He but... still deserves the max more. Yes. Player number three, Jaron Jackson Jr. I'm going to go with a pass here. He showed a ton of promise two years ago, but based on his injury this year and then his really, really poor play in his return, he is not at that level as of now. Oh, this one's tough. I don't know why, but I, I think for some reason I, I, I may prefer... Jaron Jackson Jr. over John Collins. I think he's a little bit of a better defender. I'm not sure. I'm 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 gonna side with no. A max offer for a five year deal. If you have a rookie, that's that's a lot of money guaranteed. That's 150 million dollars plus. And I I think that the Grizzlies want some flexibility. They have a lot of good contracts. Dylan Brooks, um, Kyle Anderson, Jonas Valanciunas, where they have a lot of flexibility. And look, if, if there's any merit to the Zion rumors wanting to play with Jaw and not liking New Orleans, or even Jaw's potential in attracting another star to Memphis, you can't offer Jaron Jackson Jr. a max deal. The The big thing with Jaron Jackson Jr. is I think they could trade him for another young player who has another year on his deal. So you kind of just put off that timeline a little longer. That's probably the way I would be looking if I were the Grizzlies. If you're, let's say John Collins leaves for whatever reason in a hypothetical situation, this probably doesn't make much sense. John Collins leaves. Would you accept an Atlanta Hawks offer with Cam Reddish in a first-round pick for Jaron Jackson Jr.? Possibly. I mean, that that's the kind of deal I was talking about. Cam Reddish... I don't think I would accept it initially. I would have to wait until Cam Reddish performs for you know right. half a season or something right. because instead of two games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody's hyping him up right now, but you definitely need a bigger sample size there. That is a, the exact kind of trade I'm referring to, though. Right. No, I mean Cam Reddish has a lot of talent. He he was a top recruit, played at Duke, very streaky shooter, but he can turn it on. So yeah. All right. So we have. One yes for DeAndre Ayton and two no's for Collins and Jaron Jackson Jr. Player number four, this one is probably the easiest one on the list, John Morant. Max. Easily. Yeah. The <laughs> nice. Probably the best young player that's ever played for the Grizzlies. It's pretty close with Pau Gasol when he was in the Grizzlies right. first year or two. But yeah, I mean, he's he's the heart and soul of Memphis. Had to throw him on here. He has another year till they can max him, but they're going to jump on that day one. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should add in, like, he's kind of in the group with Trey and uh, Luca and Zion, Zion even, who where... are all going to get maxes, and it's not yeah. even debatable. We didn't include them. It wouldn't be fun. Just <laughs> like it wasn't for Jaw. Ja. <laughs> oh, yeah, we had to make it 10, you know. 
Good point. Good point. All right. So we have two yeses and two noes. The next player, who I think is probably, in my opinion, the closest 50-50 on this list, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Do you give him a max deal? If you're the Thunder? Yes. Yes. I mean, so, yes, if you're trying to compete in the next, like, two years. No, if you're really putting this thing off for however well, that, long. That's I'm, the question. No, but but I guess my point is Shea is worthy of a max at his age. That's my point. He is. He is. If, this past if, year was unbelievable. Right. If you're the Thunder, maybe you trade him to a team that then goes on to max him. But right. Shea is getting a max contract no matter what. Right. And like you said, he really doesn't fit the... He fits the timeline of, of Lugendort and, and uh, Darius Baisley because those right. guys are kind of young and, you know, they'll... they'll but, not the 27 draft picks they have no so exactly I, I think you have to max him i i wouldn't be shocked if he got traded for more picks and stuff but no i wouldn't either but it's specifically asking should the thunder max him i think it's a close call like you were saying i i would side with yes but i do think it's close right this isn't this isn't like jaron jackson jr where i think his market value is lower than a max contract this is just like a team-centered thing with the thunder right um but i'm still gonna say yes so okay so we got three s's and two no's moving on to player number six michael porter jr uh this one i think is probably the hardest for me and if I'm Denver, I think I do it. Not because he's worthy of it, but because I'm a small market and he is, you know, nobody is going to want to come to Denver in free agency. And who knows if you're going to get another pick that good. And you have the money with MPJ, Jamal, and Jokic, and you've seen that core be pretty electric together. So I'm going to go with yes. But again, if I were the Lakers or the Celtics or some franchise that'll probably get a free agent down the line, I would probably say no. So my answer is yes. And it's not just because the small market, it's because I actually think he's worth the max offer. The the, the jump he made from year one to year two, year zero is when he got hurt. But year one, he played he average nine a game, shot over 42% from three. Year two, shot over 44% from three, averaged 19, a 10-point jump. He's incredibly athletic and long, can score. Michael Porter Jr. is as the second or third best scoring option for a Denver Nuggets team in the long run. When you have Jamal Murray locked up for a while, Nikola Jokic locked up, that's a big three that can really be the best team in the West. What we saw this past year is that anything's possible, and if you let MPJ walk in a year or two, and one of these years happens, where a Phoenix Suns team can walk in because of injuries, you're going to regret letting him walk. And I think he's worth it and has potential to average 25, 30 points a game. So I Th- say you max him. a little hefty. I don't know. Are you sure? He's like, a nobody phenomenal scorer. Bradley Beal averaged 36. Do you think he, did you think he was ever going to do that? Or 34? No, you didn't. No, no. But but the I, NBA in a few years when scoring goes up. MPJ is just more of a, like the Chris Middleton Durant type of player that just settles for pull-ups a lot. Yeah. Well, he's 22. So we'll see. Yeah. I say yes. You say yes. I do. But again, conditionally. All right. Four yeses, two no's player. Number seven, Colin Sexton pass. Any words? (laughs) Just pass. (laughs) I was waiting for you to go and then now go ahead. Tell me why. All right. So the thing with Sexton is you don't actually know how good he is because he's never played for anything important except for two regular season games against Brooklyn. Um, With that being said, I think he's good and he's worthy of a nice sized contract. It would just probably be closer to like four for 90 or something for me because I just can't trust that he will be able to perform in big moments in his career yet. I also don't think he's going to get a max from the Cavs. I think he'll get traded this summer. You know, I I came into this question with a different answer than I'm going to tell you. 
and I I was initially siding with no, like you were saying, uh, for a few reasons. He's just not the type of player that you normally go all out for to max. Sexton, who's kind of a ball dominant two guard, uh, doesn't isn't really a great passer. He's more of a scorer. He's not the most efficient scorer, although he's he's not bad. He shoots forty seven and a half percent from the field, thirty seven percent from three. There are some concerns. His three-point averages have, have gone down each of the three years, but he's taken more. But I'm going to say yes. 24 points a game in your third year at age 22 is really promising. And I don't know if he, if he necessarily fits what the Cavs want, but he really is a talented player and has Bradley Beal-level scoring potential in him. And I think that Sexton's athletic enough to become a, a pretty good defender if he works on his game. I, I'm going to say yes. I think you're cutting Beal a little short here. <laughs> I mean, Sexton's no, no. good, but Beal, like Beal is a three-level scorer all the time. And Sexton, while he's had some really good games, he's also not been like an elite three-point shooter for a lot of his career. And while he's like produced against, you know, some teams in the regular season, it's not like he's going out there and dominating the game. The Cavs still have a terrible record, even when he plays well. I just don't think he's at that level of contributing to winning where he's worth a max contract like some of these other guys are. So I, I'm, I'm not trashing Bradley Beal. He's a gator. He's my boy. But look at Bradley Beal's numbers his first few years when he came into the league at age 19. I mean, he was statistically worse than Colin Sexton. And yes, he is a phenomenal scorer now, but I, I bet you'd be surprised to hear that Colin Sexton shot two and a half percent better from three than Bradley Beal this year. So do I think no, it's I'm impossible? No, I'm not surprised. For, I, so I, I think that Colin Sexton could definitely turn into that three-level threat. Right. I, it's, it's different doing it on a bad team, and I know he's doing it efficiently, and I still don't trust him, you know, with a max deal. But let's move on to the next It's a good team? <laughs> All no, right. but they Moving have on. been. I mean, they used to, him and Wall used to go all out in the playoffs. They used to be awesome. Sure. I'd max him. I don't even know if I'd max him if I was this current Cavs team, but hypothetically, he's worth a max. So, all right. Hmm. I have five yeses, two noes. You have four yeses, three noes. Next up, Tyler Hero. Pass. Pass. He's good, but he's not max. Like, he's probably similar to the Sexton deal I just said. I'd probably give him maybe even a little less. Like, I said five for 90. I'd probably do, like, five for 75 or something. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. I'm, I'm thinking in the, the 16 to $18 million range. Um, significantly less than a max. Probably half of what a max Agreed. is. Agreed. Tyler Hero's shown a lot of promise. Of course, we're Heat fans. But he's not, he's not anywhere near a max as of now. I mean, he has to develop in so many ways. Defensively, strength-wise, he can't really drive. He's a great pull-up shooter who can get hot. He's a pretty good ball handler, pretty good creator for his age. Nobody really talks about that. But there's so much to his game that he does not have that he needs to improve on. I cannot confidently say I'd even pay him anywhere over $20 million at this point. No, no. And he's really good, and people don't understand, like, is he a max player? No, but he didn't have to be, and the Heat didn't necessarily need him to be. He's just, he was a good draft pick. Like, they got him at, I think, 13 or 14, yep. and he is better than that. He would be drafted higher if you redrafted. So, he's a good pick. He wasn't meant to be the next LeBron James. Good ball handler, good facilitator, good shooter, good finisher. Does a lot of things good for his age. He's not perfect, but I do think next year he'll be more similar to the player we saw his first year than his second year. And with all that said, he is not anywhere close to a max. F no. No. <laughs> all right. Player number nine. Mikhail Bridges, who is having a sensational playoff run and had a phenomenal game too, 27 points, I believe. That's awesome. But do you max or do you pass? He is maybe a max player on the right team, 
but with three stars that are going to be on max contracts like Chris Paul, Booker, and Aiton, he is unable to be maxed and shouldn't be maxed. I think the he should probably get more than Joe Harris and Berton's money because of his two-way play, so probably close to the 25, 22 to $25 million range per year, but not a max contract. So assuming Chris Paul, let's say Chris Paul leaves in a hypothetical world after this next year, he, he's the type of player that you may want to try to get close to or even max to keep him just because you don't want to let the talent walk away. But there's a couple concerns I have with Mikhail. He's already 24. He's in his third year. He's only he's already 24. He played, I think, three or four years of college ball, which is already puts him at a disadvantage. And I don't know. I just there's not enough of the offensive game developed. Where I I really like Bridges. I've talked to you about how if I was another team, I'd want to pay him over 20 million dollars. Me too. I like but him a I lot. Don't, yeah. But I don't think I don't know if he could be a a number two scoring option, even a number one scoring option one day. So I, it's hard no. to say you can max him now, but I do think he's a $20 million player. He's a good fourth best player. That's why I'm saying like a little bit more than Joe Harris and, and Bertans and what Duncan Robinson's going to get because he's a two way guy, but his inability to create his own shot and like the forecast is he's not going to be able to do that at any point in his career. In my opinion, um, that would lead me to keep him a little lower than a max. I'd say it'll be a third option pretty soon. And I think most of his career, he's going to be a third option, but even a third option, you normally don't give a max to unless they are an elite third option. Correct. All righty. Number 10, RJ Barrett. As the Knicks, you max R.J. Barrett. I agree. I say max. He is not anywhere close to worthy of it as of now. <laughs> and you still have to do it. I, The improvement I saw this second year, and given the fact that he's only 20, he's four years younger than Mikhail Bridges. I... I actually think that he's probably pretty close to a max in terms of worth. And I especially think for the Knicks, you 100% max him. But RJ's biggest concern, I mean, look, people were really concerned about his shot. And he shot 40% from three. He's a pretty good defender, an excellent driver and finisher. Averaged 17 and a half this year. I think there's a lot of potential and a lot of room for him to grow and get even better. So, yeah, I'd say max him. I guess we should also mention Ja... Morant, Tyler Hero, and RJ Barrett are a year out from being eligible for their extension. All the other guys we've named are extension eligible this summer. Right. So you do have some time for Tyler Hero. I still don't think he'll get anywhere close. RJ, if you're projecting improvement still, I, I think he's worth it next year. But he could be. I I I really would hesitate to say he will be because while he did show some nice promise this past year, that Knicks team was weird and they shouldn't have been as good as they were. We'll see if that can carry over into next year. All righty, that's 10. So hope you guys enjoyed that segment, but we are going to end this podcast with a Towel Boy question of the day. Not a Towel Boy take, with a Basically a number 11 on this list. Somebody who is not a rookie and currently on the rookie deal, but somebody that has weirdly improved a great amount and is his current contract's coming to a close. He has one more year. So the question is, would you give him a standard max contract if you are the team he's on or another team? So Landon, that player is Julius Randle. And I think, I'm pretty sure there's some option on that deal. I forgot if it's player or team. Or maybe it's there's not. Player. not but it's not player. Maybe there's, there's not. There, I think there's a certain amount of guaranteed money. Something like that. But the Knicks control him for the next year. Okay, so given the Knicks control, yeah, it is partially guaranteed. Given the Knicks control of him and the fact that we're, they're going to have another year to assess him, that's a good sign for them because what he did last year was so random and out of the ordinary that yep. you have to see if it's replicable. But 
if you're getting the Julius Randle from last regular season, then you max him without a doubt because that guy was a top 15 player in the league at that time. The issue is we saw what he, what happened in the playoffs against you know a Hawks team that was not supposed to beat them according to the ESPN analysts that voted in favor of the Knicks by a large majority. So can you really trust a player like that who showed a lot of potential in one season late in his career? Probably not. I would probably keep my offer to him around the $25 million a year range. So he's 26, first time all-star. Like you said, out of nowhere. But what impressed me most is not the shooting, the three-point shooting gain that he made from last year to this year. Nothing else besides the playmaking. That was something that Julius Randle did not develop that he really improved on out of nowhere. And I don't think that playmaking is a fluke. I mean, look, the Knicks were not a good shooting team. It's not like he surrounded himself with Steph Curry's for one year. That was that was all Julius Randle improving his driving, his shooting, and as a result, being a much better passer and seeing the court much better. I think that's here to stay. And even if Julius Randle has some regression in his three-point shooting, which he probably will, he shot over 40%. It's amazing. So even if he regresses, he's still, in my opinion, going to average 20-plus points, average six, seven assists. So yeah, I'd say you max him. Unless he is utterly awful like he was these playoffs, I don't want to judge him based on one bad playoff series and saying, oh, you can't pay him that money. He's not clutch. Right. If he plays anywhere as well as he did last year, I think you max him. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I, I, if you're the Knicks, though, you might have a free agent that decides to come there, at which point you you don't necessarily want that money tied up. But you have a lot of money. They have two max slots. They probably sign another guy for 15 mil. So look, they they have endless. Endless cash, but I get what you're saying, not wanting to build it up. Because look, if you have two stars, you never know in the next KD Kyrie you're saying, hey, we're going to go to another team. And if you don't have money for both and you sign Julius Randle, oh man, you're going to be punching yourself for 20 years. Right. That is all for this podcast, though. Hope you guys enjoyed Max or Pass. Of course, keep staying up to date on Instagram and Twitter. As always, stay tuned for some pods coming out in the near future. And let's keep watching these awesome NBA Finals. Hopefully the Bucks can make this a series. Always remember to embrace your inner towel, boy.